You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Father, we believe you are who you say you are. We believe in you. We believe in Jesus the Son. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe that you have reached down into humanity. You've taken our burden onto yourself. We believe, Lord Jesus, that you have paid the penalty for our sin. That we have been reconciled to God. That the Holy Spirit has been sent and indwells every believer, we are so thankful that you have done this and we believe that we get to look forward to a resurrection. Lord Jesus, you were raised from death to life and because we are found in you, we will be raised again to infinite life. We thank you for this. Lord God, I just pray that you would meet with us today. Loom very large in our eyes today, God. Give us a a very high view of you. We ask that you would speak to us, transform us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. We ask this for Jesus' glory. Amen. Well, good morning. It's great to be... Hey, someone said good morning. Good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. It's great to see so many familiar faces. It's great to see a lot of new faces. Uh, We've been working through a series over the last 10 or 11 weeks uh, called This Changes Everything. This meaning the gospel, everything meaning everything. It seems so often that we approach the gospel as something that maybe changes our eternal future but doesn't actually do anything for us now and we just have to kind of wade through and muddle through this life in order to get to the next life. I grew up hearing a phrase that was, hey, this is just what we do while we're waiting to die. That is incorrect. Say that with me. That is incorrect. This is not just what we're doing while we're waiting to die. The gospel changes everything. We've seen uh, the gospel changing our life, our heart, our identity, our money, our singleness, our marriage, our family. The gospel changes our work, our suffering, our purpose. And we're going to see today the gospel changes our attitudes, specifically regarding peace and joy in the face of every circumstance. Good circumstances, bad circumstances, doesn't matter. It matters, but not for our attitude. We can have peace and joy. So while we get into this, uh, just open your Bibles to Philippians 4. And if you don't have a Bible with you, we want to make sure that you get a copy of God's Word into your hands. And so there's going to be ushers going up and down the aisles and they'll have a Bible for you. If you don't have one at home, feel free to, uh, feel free to keep that. That's your copy. Um, that's our gift uh, to you. But open to Philippians 4. We're going to start in uh, verse 4. We're going to go to verse 7. And while you're finding your place, I just got a couple of questions for you. Now, these questions can be looked at as being one of two things or maybe both. Uh, really, really stupid questions or also highly rhetorical, okay? 
The question is this, have you ever experienced in your life anxiety? A few more chuckles from this crowd. Have you ever experienced anxiety? Are you experiencing anxiety right now? Or maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, man, as soon as this is over, I'm going to go out there and all the anxiety is going to come flooding back in because circumstances in my life are making me anxious. Anxiety being that uneasiness, that fear or apprehension, this, this discomfort when our perceived reality doesn't match expected reality or when the fear that our desires for ourselves will be thwarted by something outside of our control. Have you ever experienced that? Do you experience that? It's, if, if so, you're not alone. I was uh, talking with a friend of mine a little while ago and I was told that, this is a little bit of a younger friend, and I was told that apparently quarter-life crisis is a thing now. Quarter-life crisis. I grew up being like, man, what's with midlife crisis? I get the motorcycle, that's really cool. I used to ride a motorcycle, and so I'm like, hey, I want my midlife crisis right now at 18 years old. But now, now there's this thing going around, you're 25, 30, up into 35, that they're calling quarter-life crisis. And really what it is is this anxiety that, that surrounds the idea that I don't actually have at this point in my life what I think I should have at this point in my life. House, spouse, uh, job that I love, a certain income level. And that creates anxiety. Uh, a lot of publications now are producing articles and a lot of the psychological associations, etc., etc., are talking about anxiety. And apparently, anxiety is the number one mental uh, health issue in North America. Uh, one in three adults ex- uh, ask for help to deal with anxiety and 50% of college students. Since World War II, this whole idea has been on the rise big time. Anxiety is actually becoming a thing. The world is recognizing anxiety as a real issue and yet, with all of the treatments and all of our pursuits of health, wealth, and happiness, the issue is not going away. The question is why One organization makes it very clear, actually not one, in, in different terms, a few organizations make it clear that anxiety is actually not a disease or a biological illness, but rather is a result of a certain style of behavior. And the world's remedy is just pursue what makes you happy. If it makes you happy, do it. There are religions that are built around the idea that desires are bad so get rid of your desires. That, that's how you can deal with anxiety. Just, just don't desire anything. There are other religions that just say, hakuna matata. No worries. But is that true? There are other religious philosophies that adopt uh, song lyrics like, don't worry about a ting. Because every little thing is going to be all right. But is that true? Can we take that to the bank? Does that actually deal with our anxiety? We self-medicate. There's all kinds of self-help books and programs. and, And we pursue, we spend billions of dollars on pleasure, comfort, leisure, entertainment. Everything from pornography and alcohol to fast cars, 
big houses, uh, fancy cruises, and the issue doesn't go away. I was thinking about this and, and, it, and it occurred to me, despite our great technological advances, despite unprecedented convenience, society today is marked by an acute lack of joy and the chronic presence of anxiety. And all of the solutions don't work. The solutions that are presented by the world do not work. And so we're going to see here in God's word that God confronts anxiety head on and confronts the world's promises and remedies. So let's look at verse 4 of Philippians chapter 4. And we'll read Paul's first command. And if we believe that the gospel changes everything, somehow this has to be true and has to be possible. Verse 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And then he really wants to emphasize this, so he says, Again, I will say, Rejoice. Now, <laughs> I read this and I'm like, how? That's impossible. Rejoice always? Well, let's look at what Paul's talking about here. So first of all, what is rejoice? Well, uh, to rejoice is to feel and express joy. And joy, what is joy? Joy is not an idea it's not a conviction or a persuasion or even a decision. It may be a decision to rejoice, but joy itself is not a decision. Joy itself is an emotion. Now, we've got two camps in the world. Some camps who are saying, emotion good, intellect bad. Other camps who are saying, emotion bad, intellect good. Okay? Well, just, just purely generally, God's given us both. Intellect and emotion, and they're not opposed to each other. It's just that one's the leader and one's the follower. So joy, just generally speaking, is an emotional. It's just simply feeling good, being satisfied, being happy and content. And, and here's the reality. Everyone is pursuing this. Everyone is pursuing this. Even the head people, they're pursuing joy. We're all pursuing joy because we're designed to pursue joy. The issue is not whether emotion is good and intellect is bad. The issue is not whether uh, pursuing joy is a noble thing or not. It is a noble thing. The issue is the source of our joy. The issue is what we actually pursue, what we actually value, where we actually uh, get our contentedness and our satisfaction from. That's actually the issue. If Here's a couple of examples. If you think that you're going to get joy from the Toronto Maple Leafs, people are shaking their heads. Uh, you're not going to get much of it because they don't win much, but in the odd chance that they do win, well, actually, the Leafs do win something. They won a lottery this year. They're going to get the first overall pick, okay? Um, but as soon as they lose, joy is gone, okay? The Raptors had a good run this year. But then the Cavs stole all Raptors fans' joy by beating them down in games five and six and putting them out. See, if our joy is in fast cars, as soon as we get out of the car, our joy is gone. If our joy is in, is in relationships, as soon as we stop getting from people what we think we need from them, our joy is gone. If our joy is in financial security, 
You need to learn something about central banks and how this whole thing works. And as soon as you realize that this is smoke and mirrors and it will pass away, your joy is gone. The Bible is very clear. We don't get our joy from material. So let's look at where Paul gets his joy from. So Paul's writing this letter to the Philippians, the, the church in Philippi, and he's writing from prison. He's not writing from an ivory tower of contentment and security, and he's not writing to a church that's in a place of some idyllic existence. He's writing to a church that is experiencing contention from within. False teachers are attacking. He's writing to a church that's starting to see persecution. And he's saying, rejoice in the Lord always. That phrase, in the Lord, is actually the defining factor to this entire command And if we back up into the first two chapters of of Philippians, we'll see what Paul's joy is actually rooted in. We're not going to actually look there because the words words rejoice and joy occur about 16 times in this particular letter. We can't look at all of them. But here's basically where Paul gets his joy from. Paul gets his joy from the reality that Christ will be exalted and proclaimed in him And in the church, God's people, whether he lives or dies. Paul says earlier, to live is Christ. For for me, to live is just to keep doing Christ's work and to keep proclaiming the gospel, to keep telling people that God loves them so much that he sent his son Jesus to come and pay for their sin, die on a cross, suffer immeasurably, reconcile people to God so that we We can have joy in the midst of dire circumstances here, but then also, in the end, we get to go to a place, a heavenly kingdom that's being prepared right now by the one with infinite power to carry through on all of his promises and all of his purposes, a heavenly kingdom being prepared right now where there is no more pain, there is no more hunger, there is no more thirst. Every tear is wiped away, and it will be nothing but endless joy forever. Do you know what? The world has a problem with that. They go, that's unbelievable. That's crazy. Do you want to know what's unbelievable and crazy about it? It is unbelievable and crazy. That's so above everything that, everything that the world promises us that we kind of go, well, you know what? It's kind of abstract. But just because something is unbelievable and crazy doesn't mean it isn't true. If God is who he says he is, and he says, this is, what, this is what I'm doing for you. This is what I'm calling you to. And it's like, well, it's unbelievable and crazy. Our view of God needs to expand because he can do that. He has done it. He is doing it. It is coming to pass. Unbelievable and crazy or not, it is still true. Think about that. Let that soak into your soul. This isn't it. Lasting joy is found in the Lord when every thought and every deed, every aspect of life is aligned with God's purposes and his glory. The supreme ideal for Paul here is to know Christ and make him known because this isn't it. We're called to something so much greater, something crazy, but true. And this is Paul's source of joy. We can't find it in the world 
We can't find it in the world. So your point number one, you can jot this down. So the gospel changes everything, changes my attitude, so I can have joy in every circumstance. I can have joy in every circumstance. John Piper, uh, I came across a definition of joy, Christian joy, because source is the issue, right? Do we get our joy from the things here, the promises here, the empty promises? The reason we have to go from this thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing, relationship after relationship, vehicle after vehicle, hobby, fixation after fixation, is because the promises that this will give you joy are false promises. They don't actually give you joy because it doesn't last. We're designed for an everlasting joy. That's the reality. We are designed for an everlasting joy and that's why every single person on this planet is constantly pursuing something to make them joyful. Every person on this planet is constantly pursuing something to make them joyful and it never lasts and that's why we're unhappy because we're looking in the wrong spots. So Piper's, Piper's definition for joy and at first I kind of I kind of was like, I don't know about this. Um, can I do that? Can I? John Piper? Anyway, I guess so. But he actually won me over. I read the rest of his article. So Piper calls this, Christian joy is a good feeling. Don't be afraid of that. A good feeling in the soul. Now here's the source part. Produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in his word and in the world. It's a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Jesus Christ in his word and in the world. That's Christian joy. And that's Christian joy that lasts. And that's Christian joy that transcends circumstance because it's joy that's not rooted in circumstance. It's not rooted in the rays. It's not rooted in people patting you on the back. It's rooted in something unchangeable, someone unchangeable. It's rooted in God and his love for us in the provision of Jesus Christ for us, and the hope of eternal glory. Something crazy. That's Paul's source of joy. So, your circumstances today. Is there anxiety there? Is, is something stealing your joy? I admit it, I struggle with anxiety because I take my, my eyes off Jesus and I put it on my circumstances and I go, man, how am I ever going to be happy with this? And the reality is, the anxiety conceals Christ. And what we need is we need to be reminded that God loves us so much that he stepped down into humanity, took our burden onto ourselves, or onto himself, off of ourselves, onto himself, bore sin on the cross in Jesus Christ, reconciled us to God so we can have a relationship with him, we can be tapped back into the source of everlasting joy, and we know that in the end... Every tear wiped away. No more hunger. No more thirst. No more pain. Everlasting joy forever. The naysayers say, that's impossible. Yes, it is. Except God has made it possible because all things are possible with God. Amen? So what we need to do is we, when we're experiencing anxiety and the call is to joy... We need to lead our emotions, the anxious emotion, and, and one of the marks of, a, of emotion is we don't have immediate control over it right away. So what we need to do is take our emotions and we need to lead them, intellect and emotion work together. Emotion's a good follower, intellect's a good leader. We lead our emotions to a place of truth and light. 
we need to be preaching the gospel to ourselves, this good news, this good news that we can be reconciled to God in Christ and tapped into the source of eternal joy, we need to lead ourselves to that place and draw our emotions into alignment with what is true, not with what is not true, not with what is fleeting, not with what is uh, deceptive and ultimately trying to destroy us. Joy in the Lord transcends circumstances because joy in the Lord is not rooted in circumstances, but is rooted in the Lord of our circumstances. It's rooted in God's love for us and his power on our behalf to save us and to glorify us with Christ. Now look at verse 5. Paul goes on and says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. So what is reasonableness exactly? And I know when I first started into this, and I know that kind of the tendency is when we talk about emotion, now we've got to talk about the head. We've got to talk about reason. That's not actually what's being communicated here. He's not talking about reasonableness. That's just the way the ESV, the uh, English Standard Version, uh, translates it. The New American Standard Bible translates it this way. Gentle spirit. Let your gentle spirit be known to everyone. The New International Version calls it gentleness. The King James Version calls it moderation. The uh, American Standard Version calls it forbearance. And really what this is describing is a fair-mindedness, the attitude of a person who is charitable towards people's faults and merciful in judgment of failings because their whole situation is taken into account. Graciousness might be a better English rendering there. Let your graciousness be known to all people, okay? We have uh, the great commandment. I'm not sure which wall it's on. The great commandment is to love God with everything, our whole heart, our whole inner person with everything. And then the second commandment is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Rejoice in the Lord is kind of your love God with everything. Trust him. He loves you. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone is kind of your love your neighbor as yourself. It's been described as a spirit of willingness to submit to the Lord under trial that shows itself in a refusal to retaliate when attacked. That's reasonableness. I was thinking about times when I'm not reasonable. Uh, and I, I know this isn't confession, but driving over here this morning... It actually, when I look back on it, it was actually pretty good. We got a lot of green lights, but it felt to me like every light was red. I was running a little bit behind, wanted to get here, uh, had some stuff for Haymall to put in on the slides, and oh, oh no, we got to get there quick, can't get out of the, fast, there, the house fast enough, and now we're hitting every light on the way down, and now some dude is driving a go-kart down the road, not really a go-kart, it felt like it, because he was going so slow, and I'm anxious all of a sudden, and I wanted to beep this guy and be like, get out of my way. I have something important to do and somewhere important to go. The lights, this guy, totally unreasonable. No, I was unreasonable. I was being unreasonable, okay? Road rage, you can go on YouTube and find all these videos of people just freaking out at just like bizarre things. We live in a culture that is not gentle. We live in a culture that is totally unreasonable. And, and we contribute to that, don't we? At least I do. We watch American politics right now. 
Do I have to say any more about that? We got people in our House of Commons going and like trying to force people to their seats so they can like hurry up and pass a, pass a bill that they're just, you know, like lose control. Like, like our leaders, okay, lack of reasonableness because of lack of joy because they don't have the source. Now here, here, now, just to bring it a little bit more, a little closer. Um, this lack of reasonableness, I talk about, you know, like you're sitting at your computer and, and if you're a PC user, that little hourglass comes up and starts flipping over and you're like, come on, application load, like what's going on? You get unreasonable. Or if you're a Mac user, that little colorful pie wheel comes up and just start, do you know what I'm talking about? And you're sitting at your computer like, come on, hurry up. Okay, but this unreasonableness go, is so pervasive, it gets into even relationships that matter most to us with people that we care most about. Marriages. Maybe the primary relationship that's supposed to display the gospel to a, a, a world in need are hurting and breaking up because of a lack of reasonableness a lack of a spirit of willingness to submit to the Lord under trial that shows itself in a refusal to retaliate and attack. Paul says earlier, he says, hey, I'm in whatever circumstance I'm in and whether I live or die, it doesn't matter. All of this in the world is complete rubbish compared to knowing Christ and attaining Christ, having Christ. Everything else is rubbish. Christ is all. What that means is he is my ultimate treasure, my ultimate value, Everything else can go poof and it won't matter to me because I have Jesus. If we can say that as followers of Jesus Christ, why can't we forgive? Why can't we overlook the offenses that come? Why can't we be the ones that just say, hey, you know what, I'd rather be wronged, but I'm gonna pursue you in love because that's how Jesus is. That's what Jesus has taught me. That's what Jesus has done for me. Again, we have to come back to the gospel. We have to come back and preach the gospel to ourselves. We are to be known for graciousness and gentleness to everyone. This, this passage here actually points very closely. Just flip over a page backwards. We're going to go to Philippians 2. We'll read verses 5 to 8. Okay, classic passage. This is the mind and attitude that we're supposed to have within ourselves. And if we're following Jesus Christ and we're sitting at his feet and being imparted with his character and his nature and his power, then this is what needs to be growing in us. Verse 5. I'm going to start in verse 4. No, I'm going to start in verse 3. So good. So good. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And here it is, here it is. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus' death was so that we can have life. Our reasonableness, our graciousness 
needs to come. It can only come from that reality. Jesus' death was for my life. Therefore, my suffering is for him and the benefit of others. That's high. That's not anything that we can attain to. We have to have a supernatural uh, source for that. And I just want to show you 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 21 to 23. It says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. We've been called to suffer, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who, just, who judges justly. When we retaliate, it's because we do not trust God. Period. That convicts me as I'm standing here right now. Because that's the truth. That's the reality. So jot this down. I can be gentle with every person because the gospel changes everything. It changes my attitude. So we can rejoice in every circumstance, be gentle with every person, and lastly, I can pray about everything. The gospel changes everything, so I can pray about everything. Uh, Verse 6 in chapter 4, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. There's another impossible command, be anxious for nothing. Impossible, just the same way as rejoicing always is impossible unless we are being infused with a supernatural joy and we have a supernatural source and so we have a supernatural solution. Anxiety steals joy and joy comes from trust in the Lord and alignment with his heart and his purposes. So anxiety actually betrays a lack of trust in God's care and more than that, it it betrays a tendency and a desire to turn to the things that the world is promising for our care. So it's the opposite of repentance. Repentance is turning away from this, turning to God. Anxiety is turning away from God and turning to stuff that is lying to you. Does that make sense? It's crazy. Now this command to be anxious for nothing is not in isolation. It's not in isolation. Uh, There is a solution, and it's the back part of the verse. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. See, I can pray about everything, and so I can go to God with everything. That's, that's the whole point. When anxiety is starting to creep up, what we need more than anything else is to, is to turn away from that and to turn to God. And the way that we do that is we turn to God in prayer. So many of us struggle with prayer. We're like, well, God already knows what I need. Why am I asking him for it? No, no, no. Prayer is not for him. It's for you. It's for me. It's for us. It's a phenomenal tool in part for us to turn our eyes off of the things that are making us anxious and turn our eyes back onto God and remember again what God has done for us in Christ. And that brings us to our conclusion. It's because the Lord is near. If we circle back here to verse 5. I skipped a part in verse 5. Did anybody notice Good students of God's word. Jude's like, yep. Good. 
The back part of verse 5 says the Lord is at hand. So rejoice in the Lord always. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Another translation would say the Lord is near. And it's not really clear whether we're talking about the Lord being near to coming back or whether it's just the Lord is near to us in his spirit. His presence is near to us. And it's probably not clear because we're probably supposed to get that both of those things are true. The Lord is near to coming back. And every day that passes, with every trial that passes, he is closer to returning for us. That is a reality. That is a reality. And what that means is, every day, the reality that there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more hunger, no more thirst, endless joy in endless life is coming closer. It's near. Now, the other sense that God is actually near to us, he sent his spirit to indwell believers those who are following Jesus Christ. So God of very God is very, very near. He knows exactly what you're going through. He knows exactly where you are. He knows exactly what triggers anxiety. He knows exactly where you're looking. He knows exactly where you need to go. And by his spirit, he convicts us to turn us back there. He is very near. So I can rejoice in every circumstance because he is near. It, that, that little verse is nestled right in the middle and it permeates the entire passage. Because he is near, I can rejoice in every circumstance. Because he is near, I can be gentle with every person. Because he is near, I can pray about everything. I can boldly approach the throne of grace to find help and mercy in the time of need. The Lord is near. And when we do that, when we go to him in prayer, when we go to him with all of our requests, with all of our thanksgiving, in, in whatever need that we have, the promise here in verse 7 is, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. My translation is, the peace of God which makes no sense in light of our circumstances will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. When our circumstances... There are people in this church that are facing very, very difficult challenges. Very, very... Uh, uh, just hard things, hurts that just don't go away. And my prayer is that the Lord is very, very near and you have a sense of his nearness in those things. But there is available a peace that just doesn't make sense in those circumstances. The world will look at, will look at you and say, yeah, I don't get that. How in the world are you okay with that? I couldn't live like that. And they don't even know what they're saying. They definitely can't live like that. With that kind of joy in that kind of circumstance. Because the source of their joy is a false source. But the source of your joy, what's available to you in Christ, and what God is wanting, willing, waiting to pour out on you is a, is a peace that doesn't make sense. And contrast that with the world. We have everything in the West and we have a lack of peace that doesn't make sense. We have everything. A lack of peace that doesn't make sense and God is offering a peace that doesn't make sense in the light of difficult circumstances. That's the God that we serve and God is the key to all this. So I can rejoice in all circumstances because the Lord is near to me. I can be gentle with every person because the Lord is near to me. And I can pray about everything because the Lord is near. See, 
what Jesus has done to us, I just want to, what Jesus has done for us in drawing us near um, is kind of this theme in the book of Philippians or the letter to the Philippians, okay? And it, it's because Philippians is so gospel-saturated. That is the gospel. God bringing us near, paying for our sins, reconciling us to God, bringing us near. But that's kind of the theme from the start of the Bible to the end. If we go all the way back to the garden, Adam and Eve were God's people, in God's place, in God's presence, dwelling with him. And then sin came along. And there was separation. God's people were separated from God. And then God said, it's not going to be that way. I'm going to fix it. And then we see all of these patterns all the way through the Bible. Israel finds themselves in Egypt for 430 years and they cry out to God and God says, I'm going to deliver you and once again bring my people into my place in my presence again and we have the tabernacle. And then Israel is established as a, as a nation in the promised land and then the temple is built and the temple is the dwelling place of God. So God's people again in God's place, in God's presence. And then rebellion again blew that all up. The temple ends up being destroyed because God says, no, 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 we're not going to do it that way. I will dwell with man once again. And then we have Jesus bursting on the scene against the backdrop of all of this anxiety, the enormous figure of Jesus Christ comes in and changes everything. Everything. Brings us into relationship with God. So now, God's people gathered, united at the cross, become a temple for God. And God's people, again, are in God's place, in God's presence. That's the reality. And then God has given us his spirit to indwell us so that we can go and build this heavenly kingdom. This promise, this inheritance that we have. We need to have an eschatological eye. What I mean is we need to have an eye on the prize, which is Jesus Christ himself in endless joy, in endless life for eternity. And that needs to change our attitudes here because we need to reflect that. I just want to look at Luke 12, 22 and verse 32. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples and we'll wrap up. Jesus says, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. Do not be anxious. We've seen that. Do not be anxious. Fear not, little flock. And here's the source. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We're not going to be floating around on clouds playing harps or like bowing down like all the time. That's not what the Bible teaches about heaven. It's, it's going to be way more than that. And it's God's good pleasure, our Father's good pleasure to give us everything. So things, things in this world, uh, there's a hymn that talks about the things of this world go strangely dim in the, in the light of your glory and grace. That needs to be our, that needs to be what we cling to because it's true. Ephesians 2, verse 13, says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. We are designed for joy. 
we settle for anxiety, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves and realign our view, our perspective, our heart. Christ is everything. Christ is everything. And I can have joy because Jesus, for the, for the joy that was set before him, Hebrews 12, verse 2, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. That was for the joy that was set before him. So because of Jesus and what he's done for me, I can have joy in my circumstances, no matter what they are. I can be gentle with everybody because of Christ's gentleness and graciousness with us. He's infusing that into us if we receive it. And I can pray about everything because Christ has brought us near, brought me near to the throne of grace. This is the reality. Just look quickly at Philippians 4, verse 11. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What is that secret? Verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. We thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that we have something that, that will never pass away, that will always point us to what you've done for us, that will always point us to the love that you have for us, it will always point us, Lord Jesus, to the sacrifice that you made for us so that we can, we can be recreated and renewed and reconciled to you. Lord, I pray that you give us a hunger for your word. Lord, drive us into your word. Let us chew and feed on and be nourished by the truths that, that you are and that you've written down and recorded for us. Lord, I pray, I pray for anybody feeling anxiety this morning and for people who will feel anxiety during the week, Lord, I just pray that you, would, that you would minister to us, that you would come near and give us a sense of your nearness and bind up the brokenhearted, God. I pray that you would become everything to us, each and every one of us. that we would rejoice in you always. That we would be known for our graciousness and gentleness. That people would see you and see your love for them in us. And Lord, I just pray that you would move us to bring every request to you, everything on our hearts to you, because you are a good, good Father. I pray this in Jesus' name. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.